You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you this morning. Uh, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. And if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one of those. Underneath every three or four seats, you should be able to find one. And so uh, if you need a good Bible, that would be our gift to you. We'd love to give that to you. Um, you can take that home. That's the version we use here. So that would definitely serve you to have that out and, uh, and open on your lap. Okay, so, uh, so l- let me kind of preface this, this text by um, chatting with you just for a few minutes about Bible reading. We, we've kind of been encouraging all of our people to get on a Bible reading plan this year. And you know, there are so many reasons um, why Bible reading is a good idea for all of us. God does so much for our, like the soul of a human being when we open up the Bible and read it. But one of the primary things that the Bible does for us as we open up and consistently read it is the Bible, like God through the Bible, reorients us to and reminds us of the most important things in life. Like to these big, massive realities. The the Bible has this way of reminding us and reorienting us around these things. And so, you know, when you think about your life, I think about my life, it is amazing how prone we are to, to just put our head down and start accomplishing a million different things and only to wake up one day and realize that that head down accomplishing all these things that we have accomplished all of the wrong things and and the bible has this way of like shaking us out of of life for a second and allowing us to kind of get our gaze lifted up where we can actually start asking the question are we doing the right things like is our life built around the right things And, and really this was the heart of what we talked about last week in psalms 90 and it's the heart of last week's sermon, really the heart of this one too, where Moses says, looks up to God and says, God, will you please teach us to number our days aright so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. God, will you help us? This is Moses' prayer. God, will you help us not waste our life? Will you help us live now for the things that are going to mean most to us then when we stand before you? God, will you help us use our few short days well? And Moses kind of walked us through the big realities of life that we need to see and know to do that. So in Psalms 90, he walks us into this eternal nature of God, that God is not going away, that God is unavoidable. And then on the other end of that spectrum, how we are very temporal. So God over here is eternal, we're temporal. Like the Bible, the Bible uses these words to describe your life, a gra- like grass. It's like a vapor. It's like a dream. It is here one day and gone the next. And you know, this, this has just been like seeping, I feel like, deeper into my soul over the last few weeks. I felt like, man, our short, unpredictable life, we don't know when that thing is going to end. And for a lot of us, the truth is our day before God is sneaking up on us a lot quicker than we realize. And Moses is trying to warn us of that. That your life is short and it is unpredictable. You don't know when your short life is going to end. And then Moses reorients us to the problem of our sin. That the problem of our life ending is that we walk straight into the presence of God. And apart from Jesus, God is not pleased with human beings. Like apart from Jesus, God is not pleased with our sin because God is good and because God is just and holy. He is storing up a mountain of wrath for sin. And apart from Jesus, we spend all of our eternity feeling the weight of that wrath. Moses like walks us into those big things so that we'll number our days aright. So that we'll turn to Jesus and run to Jesus who is the remedy for our sin and walks us back into a reconciled relationship with God. 
This is what Moses is trying to do. He's trying to give these big reminders so that we will not waste our life. Now, in 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter is about to give us another set of reminders. And, and this is not like the big reminders of like up here, these big realities, God, you know, our nature and the problem of sin. Peter is trying to give us reminders as Christians as to who we are. He's trying to remind us of our identity as a believer in Jesus, as a son and daughter of God. Who are we in light of what God has done for us? Peter knows we are all so prone to gospel amnesia, just totally forgetting who we are in light of what Jesus has done. And so Peter is about to remind us of three huge things in this passage. Three huge, like, statements of of who we are in Jesus that that we've got to remember, that we need to remember in light of what Jesus has done for us. This is who we are in front of God. So, and, and I think just as we start out 2014, these would be wonderful reminders for you this year. Because it's not until we know who we are that we can actually start living in light of that, right? So so this is a reminder of who we are and an invitation to order our life in light of who we are. So look at these reminders. Here it is, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. Peter says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession— that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Three reminders about our identity in Jesus, who we are as a follower of God. Reminder number one. Reminder number one goes like this. We are a gospel-centered people. In light of what God has done for us in Jesus, we are a gospel-centered people. Now, just to kind of make sense of of what that means, um, we first have to get in our mind clearly what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news of all that God has done to rescue you and I. It's the good news that God has sent his son Jesus to live a perfect life. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the commands of law, of the law. Everything God says, you need to do this, Jesus perfectly did that. He lived a perfect life. And he died on the cross for our sin. So all of those ways that we did not live a perfect life, all, all of those ways that we have rebelled against God and disobeyed God, all of those little moments of rebellion got pushed onto Jesus on the cross. He took all of that rebellion. And on the cross, we get all of his perfect record of righteousness. It's this beautiful exchange, right? He gets all of our bad stuff. We get all of his good stuff. That's about as good as it gets right there, right? And and then God raised him from the dead on the third day, showing God's power over Satan's sin and death. So that now God invites you and I to put our faith in Jesus and to be reconciled to him forever. Okay, this is the good news of the gospel. Now listen, that is not good advice on how you and I perform good enough to reach up to God. That is not the gospel. It's not good advice about how you reach up to God. The gospel is the good news about God doing everything to reach down to you. Okay, this is the good news of the gospel. Now we see this packed into this this verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Peter is about to show us, in light of what God has done, now now look at who you are. He's giving us these gospel reminders. And and look at it in verse 9. He says, basically he's pronouncing this over us. 
Like he's writing to Christians that are ostracized and persecuted a couple thousand years ago. He's pronouncing it over them and us. And look at what he says. Because of what Jesus has done for you, here's who you are. You are a chosen race. Now, isn't that humbling to know that for, for no good reason in you, that God has set his affection on you. He has singled you out and set his affection on you. He, he's chosen you. It says that you are a royal priesthood. That the idea of priest in the Bible is someone who has access to God. And because of Jesus, do you know, do you know what you have because of the good news of the gospel? You have access to God. Amen. You can pray to God and God hears you. Royal priesthood. It says you are a holy nation. Now, when I read that word holy and use that and, and knowing that the Bible is like describing a son or daughter of God, somebody that is in Christ, that is absolutely staggering to me. To, to know that that's how God would look at you and I if we're in Jesus, even in the midst of the mess of our sin, the mess of our lives, that God would look at you and pronounce over you, this is how I look at you. I look at you as holy, as perfect, as approved, as presentable. Because of the work of Jesus, that's how I look at you. In the middle of all of your sin and mess, I look at the perfect record of Jesus over you. You're, you're a holy nation. And he says this, that you're a people from my own possession. That like, you, you are now mine. This is what God is saying. He's looking at you and he's saying, because of Jesus, if you're in Christ, you are now mine. You are a son or daughter of mine. And now I have pledged and promised myself to be a good father to you. This is how I feel about you. I have fatherly affection for you. I mean, isn't that amazing? But Peter is reminding us of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ here. He's reorienting us around the main central theme of our life, the good news of the gospel, who God has made us in light of what Jesus has done for us. Okay, so, so that's the gospel. Now it's the question of what does it mean to be gospel-centered? But when we say that we're a gospel-centered people, we're saying this, that our whole life is staked on the gospel. Our entire being is, is, is staked on and defined by what Jesus has done for us. To say that we're gospel-centered means that our life is soaked with the gospel, that we're living in light of the gospel. The gospel defines us. It does everything for us. It's the hinge of our life that, that turns everything else it's saying that in every, in every moment of our life, we are asking the question, how does the gospel address this? And in light of the good news of Jesus, how should we be thinking about this? How should we be seeing this? What should we be feeling about this? This is what it means to be gospel-centered. I love how Joe Thorne, he answered the question. He's in our same church planning network that, that we're a part of. He, he, I love how he answered the question. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? Here's how he answered it. What does it mean to be gospel-centered? This will be on the screen for you. To be gospel-centered means that the gospel, and when we say gospel, we're saying, and Jesus himself, just to clarify that. We're saying that the gospel, and Jesus himself, is our greatest hope and boast, our deepest longing and joy, and our most passionate song and message. It means that the gospel is what defines us as Christians, unites us as brothers and sisters, and changes us as sinners and as saints, and sends us as God's people on mission. When we are gospel-centered, the gospel is exalted above every other good thing in our lives and triumphs over every bad thing set against it. That's what it means to be gospel-centered. 
Now that walks us into one of the primary misconceptions people have about, about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, a lot of people view the gospel as something that is only for people who don't know Jesus yet. So, so it's relegated to the world of like, if you're an unbeliever, somebody that has not put their faith in Jesus, the gospel is just for you. And, and listen, can we all celebrate that the gospel is for people who don't know Jesus? If you're here this morning and you have not put your faith in Jesus, the good news of the gospel is that God has done everything needed to, to, to open up reconciliation with him. That we have a problem called sin between us and God, and God has done everything needed in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus for you to be made right with God. And it's an invitation for you this morning to put your faith in Jesus and to be reconciled to God forever. That's the good news of the gospel for a person that doesn't know Jesus. But it's also the good news for people who do know Jesus, right? It's good news for all of us in the room. If you're a believer, it's a good news for you. If you're an unbeliever this morning, it's great news for you. It is good news for all of us because all of us still have a problem of sin, don't we? None of us has left off sinning yet. So all of us are in daily need of grace. I, I love how Tim Keller says this. I just, it's hard to put words on it better than this. He says it this way. The gospel is not just the ABC of Christianity. It's the A to Z of Christianity. The gospel is not just the minimum required doctrine necessary to enter the kingdom of God, but the way we make all progress in the kingdom of God. It is the solution to each problem, the key to each closed door, and it's the power through every barrier. Like this is the gospel. It's for all of us in the room, believer, unbeliever, Christian, non-Christian. It is our only hope, all of us. And, and listen, when you think about this, like the primary point of confusion wraps around this. The gospel is not just our remedy for the past penalty of sin, like the penalty of sin in our life. It's not just the remedy for that. It is the remedy for the penalty of sin. It is the way God pays the debt of our sin, but it's not just the remedy. It's not just this past tense thing where God saved us one day from the penalty of our sin. And it's not just a future tense reality where God will one day save us from the presence of sin. It is both of those, praise God. But it's not just those. It's not just this past reality where God pays the penalty of our sin. It's not just this future reality where God, where God fully wipes away sin from our life, frees us from the presence of sin. But it's also right now in the life of a believer, a present reality. We're like right now today, it is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are freed from the power of sin in our life. Like right now, you, you know, like those issues that you have going on in your life, those sin issues, those sinful tendencies that you have, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the primary means by which God helps you grow through those things, by which God removes those things. See, the gospel is not just this past tense thing that God saved us back in the past. It is how God is currently saving us and sanctifying us and changing us and growing us right now in the present. I love how Paul puts it in, uh, in Colossians 1. Pa Paul makes it plain in Colossians 1 that there is a direct correlation between our grasp of the gospel. So grasp of the gospel over here and our growth in Christ over there. A direct correlation between those two. So growth in Christ is always preceded by grasp of the gospel. A deeper and wider understanding of what God has done for us in the person and work of Jesus. See, like the, the gospel is not like this little prerequisite course. You just have to get that one out of the way and then you move on to the bigger and better things. It is the big and better thing. It is the thing that we swim in for the rest of our life as Christians. 
Okay, now to show you that in this passage, let me just remind you of who it is that Peter is writing to. Is it unbelievers or believers? It's believers, right? It's believers. He is writing to the rescued, reminding them that they have been rescued. This is what Peter's doing. And he's doing that for good reason because we are all prone to gospel amnesia. Say that again. We are all prone to forget who we are in Jesus. And that's why we need reminders, consistent reminders of all that God has done for us in Jesus. I I love how Martin Luther, the great reformer, how he um, said it. He was commenting, uh, this is in his Galatians commentary. Uh, He was commenting on Galatians 2.14. And listen to what he says about that. He says, the truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. So it is at the center. It's what's most necessary. And then he goes on to say this. Most necessary is it that we know this article, the gospel, well, that we teach it to others, and that we, and I love this phrase, and that we beat it into their heads continually. We are all in need of being continually like beaten in the head with the good news of the gospel. And you know why that is? Because for every one of us in here, the default mode of our heart operates much more like karma than grace. It operates much more like it, you get what you deserve. Where the gospel is reorienting to God saying this about us, I am giving you so much better than you deserve. I'm giving you grace. We have to be reoriented to that. That's why like weekly preaching, the goal of weekly preaching is re-announcing the good news of the gospel in an effort to beat it into our heads. This is what we're trying to do week in and week out. So Peter, is re- he's reminding believers, this is who you are. This is what God has done for you. This is the good news of the gospel. So we are a gospel-centered people. Second reminder. Reminder number two. Reminder one, we are a gospel-centered people. Reminder number two, we're a people living in community. We're a people living in community. So look back at 1 Peter 2 here, verse 9. And here God pronounced this over you again. If you're, in, if you're in Christ, if you have put your faith in Jesus, trusted and treasured Jesus, that li- listen to what God says about you. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Now that's a great description of the Christian life right there, isn't it? Of who we are in Christ. I want you to look back at verse 9, and I want you to notice that none of those things are singular. All of those things are plural. Okay, so, so just watch this again. N- none of these things are like individual. So he, he looks at this and in verse 9 he says, but you, and that's you plural. That's not you individual. That's you like in the plural sense. You plural. This is what you plural are. This is what y'all are if we're in Texas, right? Y'all are a chosen, and listen to this. He doesn't say person. He says, you're a chosen race. He he says, you're a royal, not a royal priest, but you're a priesthood. He says, you're a holy, not a holy person. It takes more than a person to make a nation, doesn't it? You're a holy nation. You're a people, not a person for God's own possession, but a people, plural, for God's own possession. And if you want to summarize what Peter is saying, he's saying this, that in Jesus, God makes us a family. He makes us a family. So, so think about how this works out. So if you're a Christian, here's what that means. That God has set his affection on you and God has saved you. He's adopted you into his family. Now, so that means you're a son or daughter of God. Now look around the room here. 
if God has done that for you and he's done that for someone else, what would that make you and them? Brothers and sisters, family, right? This is why one of the dominant metaphors for the church in the New Testament is this idea of family, like the household of God. He's continually reminding us throughout the New Testament that I have made you family, right? That you, in, in light of you, you know, being family, this is what you are positionally. Now you need to live as family. You need to live in community with your church. So, so he's looking around and saying, listen, as a church, you are not like some loosely connected group of people that just happened to meet on Sunday. That is not who you are. As a church, look around like this is, this is family for us. He's reminding us of that here. This is more than just a loosely connected group of people. This is family. Okay, now in light of that, we need to chat for just a few minutes here. Because, okay, if this is what God has made us positionally, family, here's the warning that needs to be attached with that. For us to practically grow into what God has positionally made us is hard work. So, so let me say this again. Like what God has, like God has positionally made us family. But for us as a church family, like for you and I together, for us to practically grow into what God has made us, that is difficult. That is not for the faint of heart, right? Now, we have used a graphic around here a couple of times. We actually use it in all of our membership stuff now to describe the pathway to, we'll call it Family Mountain. So I, I just want to re, like reintroduce this again. Um, and just remind you, because a lot of you that have seen this before need to be reminded of this like right now in your life, right? And so I, I want to remind you of how it is like the pathway for all of us to grow in to what God has positionally made us, okay? And this is a painful pathway. There is no other way to grow into the family that God has made us, already made us. There's no way to grow into that without some pain. So, so this would be a description of it. So this path right there, that is the journey toward Family Mountain. Now, Family Mountain up there on the, the top right, that is what God has positionally made us. Like in Jesus, we are brothers and sisters. We are family with one another. And this little path right here is, is the process, the painful path that, that it requires all of us to travel on to actually get up to Family Mountain. So it, it follows a really predictable course. Let me just kind of run through the course here. It starts with this idea of cool. Right there it's coming. Just wait for it. Oh, actually, we're going to start with interesting. <laughs> interesting and cool, they're really about the same thing. And so it starts with this idea of interesting, that we um, find a group of people that, that just intrigue us. We look at them, and they just feel interesting enough for us to say, I'm going to take one more step toward them. I'm going to come back on a Sunday. I'm going to go to a home group. I, I'm just going to take one more step relationally toward them. And then you get to this idea of cool. So cool just takes interesting, you know, one more step. So it just takes what is already interesting and just solidifies what's already interesting. So, so there's just maybe some unique wisdom that they have. You just look at them and think, man, I, whatever, whatever cool is, they've kind of got it. And I'd kind of like to know them more. It's how all of our relationship starts. Every friendship starts kind of in the same sort of predictable little pathway here. And then if you follow interesting and you follow cool far enough, you get up to what we call awesome hill. Now, Awesome Hill is great, isn't it? So, so in, on Awesome Hill, it is where we know all of the good things about that person. We just don't know the bad stuff yet. So, so we know all of the good things they bring to the table. We know, you know, we know where their giftedness is. We know where their wisdom is. We know all of those great things about them that make them so awesome. But if you have, and by the way, this is like the honeymoon phase of like courtship and dating and marriage, Right? 
And, and you find out really quickly, though, that people aren't just awesome, that we're all a mixed bag, aren't we? Right? And this is the fall into what we would call Cruddy Valley. Now, if you've been around here long enough, you know that we have other names for Cruddy Valley. There's like a couple of layers beneath Cruddy that you can get to really quickly with people, right? But Cruddy Valley is that moment where um, we have sinned against one another. We have hurt one another. We have done things that just damage the relationship. And it really hurts. Like Cruddy Valley is the moment where we recognize that behind awesome, behind this, this facade of awesome, that person is really a self-serving, self-centered jerk. Right? It's that moment when we realize that. That's the fall into Cruddy Valley. Now, l- let me just pause for a second here and talk about what we naturally do in this moment. So what, what normally happens in the context of most churches is when we start to develop relationships with people, we're starting to kind of, kind of pursue community. We get to Awesome Hill and everything is going so great. And then we make the fall into Cruddy Valley and we all reflexively say this, heck with them, I'm out of here. I am done with this. I did not sign up for your junk. I wanted this thing to be perfect. That's what we're actually saying, right? I wanted you to be perfect. I wanted you to actually be Jesus and you let me be imperfect. Right, so as soon as we realize they're not Jesus and they actually harm us and hurt us, we reflexively say, I'm out of here. I'm done. And so here's what normally happens. We disengage from that person or that group of people. Like if it's a home group, we just kind of stop showing up. So we kind of stop showing up. We disengage over there and we find another person that's interesting, that's cool, and we get to Awesome Hill with them. And then they disappoint us. And when they disappoint us, we disengage from them. We just kind of stop showing up, stop making phone calls, stop doing all that. And then we go over here and we, we try to plug in this group of people that's interesting. And then we get to Awesome Hill with them and we fall into Cruddy Valley and then we do it all over again. And the truth is like our church is big enough right now where you can do that for a lot of years. You can do that for a while now. And if you run out of groups of people to do that with, you just disengage from the entire group of people, the whole church, and you go down the road and find another one. And, and just to be honest, that's how a lot of you got here. I, I didn't actually know it was going to be funny, but I'm, I'm game for that. But, but the truth is that this is how we work. Like people disappoint us, and, and what we reflexively do is we pull out of those relationships. And, and the reason I wanted just to bring this up is I just want to encourage you. It, Cruddy Valley is the necessary prerequisite to get to Family Mountain. See, we've got to be a people who when we fall into Cruddy Valley, we do not allow that reflexive fleshly response that says, you either be Jesus to me or I'm out of here, to rule us. That the good news of the gospel is we can stick in to those moments. We can stick in and we can suffer long with people. We can be patient with people. We can realize that every moment we are seeing sin in other people, it's really just a mirror to show us our own sin, right? Okay, now let me just take a step back here and just, you know, look at this whole thing together. See, if you could, if you could imagine yourself being at the front of this journey, so you're looking at kind of this pathway like this. One of the common misconceptions is it looks like just on the, like one step beyond Awesome Hill, it looks like it's just like right there is Family Mountain. So we just kind of get to Awesome Hill and take one more little step and then we're there. Can we all just see this? It is not one step between Awesome Hill and Family Mountain. It is one fall off of a sheer cliff. 
You're down in Cruddy Valley where everything hurts, everything's painful, nothing is convenient. It's grueling, it's grimy. You're dealing with the sin of other people's lives, you're dealing with your own sin, you're speaking the truth in love, there's hard conversations, there's all of that. And it's when you get down there and work through all of that that you start to make the slow kind of climb up the family mountain. But there is no family mountain apart from Cruddy Valley. There is none. So we've all got to be willing to stick into Cruddy Valley if we want to make it up to Family Mountain. Because we're all sinful people, right? Like, we're all really sinful. And if we're going to get to Family Mountain with really sinful people, it's going to require a jaunt through Cruddy Valley. Okay, so now in light of that and just how difficult this is, I want to ask you just three quick questions for you to be able to gauge, are you on the pathway to Family Mountain with us? Like, are you treating your church like a family? Is it just a loosely connected kind of thing that you do on Sunday morning and just kind of come and get your fill and go home? Or is this a family that you are trying to live within? So let me just offer you three quick questions and and we'll keep moving here. Number one, question one, are you committed to a home group? Are you committed to a home group? So like home groups are the pathway for us to get to Family Mountain. Like it's the context that all of that, you know, that whole graph plays itself out on. You just go to a home group long enough and you're going to be in Cruddy Valley before long, right? Just, just give it a few days and you're going to be there, right? So it's the context for all that to play out. So I just want to take a moment to encourage you. If you're not in a home group, then there is no time to start. There's no time. It's, if you're in a home group, you are making one of God's greatest blessings to your life. One of God's greatest blessings. So I want to just make sure that you're and, and, but it's really a bigger question than just, are you going to a home group? It's, are you committed to one? And, and that means, are, are you treating your home group like it's family? Like, are you trying to live as if these people are like family to me? And you know, as soon as you um, start treating people like family, you know what that's going to mean for you? It's going to be very inconvenient. It's going to be really hard sometimes. There's going to be conversations that you need to have that you don't want to have. It's all of that comes along with it being family. It means that you're going to show up even when it's not convenient. It means that you're going to get your life intersected with their life even when it's hard and difficult. Right? So, so are you committed to a home group? And if not, man, what a great time to, to start. Second question. Do people speak the truth in love to you? This is one of the ways that you know you are past awesome hill. Is when people actually feel the freedom to speak the truth in love. You know, one of the major marks of sin is that it's deceptive. And now, let's just go one step further. And one of the worst things about sin is that it convinces us that we're seeing clearly even when we're deceived. Are you seeing how that works? It not only deceives, but it makes you think that you're seeing clearly when it is that you're deceived. And if you need proof of that, just read it about the Pharisees in the Bible, right? They would have sworn that they were doing the will of God. If you need more proof, just look at slave owners of a couple of centuries ago, right? So, so we all have a unique ability to be absolutely deceived by sin and all the while think that we are seeing clearly. And welcome to all of our need for community. We all need this. We all have blind spots. And by definition, that means you can't see them. And inviting other people into our life to speak into it, the big decisions, the money decisions, all of those things, inviting other people in to speak into those decisions is crucial for us. We are all really blind. We all see what we want to see, right? 
We can all justify anything we want to justify in order to kind of get what we want. And community is one of God's means to help pull us out of that. According to um, Ephesians chapter 4, I think it would be totally fair to say this. If you want to grow in, in just the grace of Jesus, if you want to grow as a Christian, if you want to grow to maturity, it requires you putting your life in good community where people can speak the truth and love to you. Apart from that, you're not going to grow to full maturity. You're always going to have like stunted growth. You're always going to be operating down here when God wants you to operate up there. It's one of God's primary ways to grow us. Maybe you can think of it this way. One of God's primary ways to like grow us out of sinful tendencies is to use his people to do it. To help us see, to rub us wrong, to do all of those sorts of things. This is one of God's primary ways to help us grow. You know, when you think about, do people love you in your life? Are you a loved person? Do people love you? I think our natural way to think about that question is to ask the next question, do people care for me? Like, are are they nice to me? Do they talk to me? Do they, you know, it's to ask that sort of a question. But I want to encourage you that maybe a better mark of the question, are you loved by people, is do you have people around you that are willing to speak the truth and love to you? Proverbs is going to make it real clear that, you know, Enemies love to kiss, but faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? That we all need friends who will faithfully wound us as we need it. And apart from that, like we're setting ourselves up for disaster. For, I mean, for absolute disaster. Question number three. Are you 100% known? Question number three, are you 100% known? Like one of the unique things about family is family knows you, right? And so, and so we're asking the question, like, do people know you? And, and this is going to be like a broken record if you've been around here for very long. But if you're 99% known and 1% unknown, what does that make you? Unknown. It means that people don't know you. See, if you're willing to give like people all the stuff that you're comfortable with them knowing, but like keeping back the stuff that you're not comfortable, that means that they don't know you yet. Right? That mean, maybe you can think of it this way. That means that you're still pretending with people. You're still acting as if you're that, when in reality you're not that. And you know you're not that, Right? And so really what community is and what the, the journey up the family mountain is, is a, it's an invitation to stop pretending and to be known by people. And maybe we could apply this in two different directions in our church. You know, in one way, there is a lot of us who live with a no trespassing sign hung on our life that clearly communicates to the world, you do not ask those questions. You can come this far and no further. Many of us live like that, and we've lived like that for all of our life. It reminds me of what, of this quote by Karl Barth, a, a theologian of a couple of centuries ago, where he said this, to the extent that we conceal ourselves and do not move to know and let ourselves be known by others, our existence is inhumane. Let me just say that one more time. To the extent that we conceal ourselves and do not move to let to know and to let others be known or, and to be known by others, our existence is inhumane. Like, it's just him saying that that's not how God designed you to live. He didn't design you to live in, in like such a way that you're pretending. And, and maybe if we applied it to, to the, another way, we could say it like this, that there are many of us in the room who like you walked in this morning and literally your house is on fire. Like your marriage is on fire. It is disintegrating and busting at the, you know, at the seams. You've got serious problems with pornography and lust. Maybe it's greed and finances. But like there are things in your life that are on fire. 
And it's as if you're trying to come out of a house that is on fire and you're trying to convince all of your neighbors who have gathered around and see smoke billowing out of your house and you're trying to convince them that, no, it's okay. The house really isn't on fire. And can can I just invite you to say this, that if your house is on fire, it's a good thing just to say your house is on fire. And just just to say, man, we don't have to pretend. And like one of the pushbacks that, that, that come along with kind of this idea is the question of, so, so you're saying like people, like they, like they want to know all of me, like they have to know all, like 100% of me. Well, and like it's always the question back, do you want to live on Awesome Hill or Family Mountain? And if you want to live on Awesome Hill, they don't have to know any part of you, just the part that you want them to know. But if you want to actually get to Family Mountain, it requires you taking off the no trespassing signs, it requires you to stop pretending and just allow yourself to be known by other people. And you know, and maybe this would be just a good moment to address why it is that, that we want to pretend so bad, right? Why that little thing exists in you and, and me to make us all want to appear better than we are. And can I just say the only remedy for that problem of wanting to appear like we've always got life together is the good news of Jesus. Like the gospel reminds us that it's already said the worst thing about us. It reminds us that we are so bad that Jesus had to die for us. Can I just say, anything that you throw out in your home group is not going to be worse than that. That Jesus, you're so bad that Jesus had to die for you, right? It's not, going to, it's not going to say something worse about you than what's already been said. And at the same time, the gospel says the best news about you. That you're so loved by Jesus that he was glad to die for you. It says them both. And when we start seeing that with clarity, it opens up in us a freedom to be able to, to be known by other people. So, so the question is, are, are you on the journey toward Family Mountain with us? We are a people living in community. We're family. I mean, we want to invite you in on that. And lastly, and we'll kind of land the plane with, with this last one here. We're a people living on mission. We're people living on mission. And that, that is not like some sort of code words for like, you've got to be a Christian ninja to make that happen, right? That is like normal, everyday life. It's what we're going for. Like living on mission is just... Everyday people doing everyday things with gospel intentionality. So it's just you and me, like normal like people doing our everyday rhythms and routines of life, but we're doing it in a really distinct way. We're doing it in such a way that we are trying to bring the good news of Jesus into every place that we are. That that's living on mission. And this is what, this is what the Bible's inviting us into. It is every minute, every day living with a gospel intentionality. That, that, you know, well, let me just back up and say this, that in 2014, one of the things that we are praying for in our church family is movement in this area. That more and more, we would be a people who are actually living this way with gospel intentionality on the mission of God together. I mean, we're praying that we would see more conversions this year, that we would see more men and women meet Jesus, their eternal destinations changed, right? Like go from, you know, death to life. And we're praying for more of that this year. I want to invite you to pray for that with us, that that we would see more of that go down this year. And this is exactly what Peter is inviting us into. He's reminding us of our identity as a missionary of Jesus. Look at it again in verse uh, uh, 9 here. 1 Peter 2 verse 9. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And and then look at what he says next, the last phrase of of the verse. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. So it's not just that the gospel creates a, a family for us to live in. It also gives us a mission to live on. 
that, that in Jesus, we have got this identity of missionary. And as we live out that identity, we get on the mission of God together. And here is the great news. And I want to be able to encourage you with this this morning, that there are so many wonderful stories about how that is happening within our church family. I mean, there are great stories. So let me just read a list of stories that are happening right now within our church family as men and women who make up our church family are living on the mission of God. So just kind of buckle in here and and let me run through some of these. The McCutcheons recently adopted two five-month-old babies who they want to grow up to know Jesus. The Tarvers have fostered almost 40 children in their home and currently have little baby T in their home right now. The Sterlings have adopted three children from overseas and are raising them to know Jesus. A guy named Mike in our church family who loves golf met a guy on the golf course who's a proud atheist. You know what I'm saying? Like wants to know, wants you to know that and kind of wants to convert you to that, right? So a proud atheist has befriended him and through several rounds of golf has been able to share the story of how God has changed his life. Mike, same Mike, has gotten to know an unbelieving coworker, befriended her adult son, shared the story of how God has changed him and is changing him, invited him to church. This guy came on Christmas Eve and has gotten him hooked up with another man in our church who's in a similar profession. So that's just an example of using your hobby and using your workplace. A couple of our firefighters have been engaging and and engaging in ways that are appropriate, right? So they're keeping the balance between a relationship that you're trying to develop and the truth of the gospel. A couple of our firefighters have been engaging their co- uh, co-workers that don't know Jesus. A few of our moms have gotten to know other moms while watching their kids practice and have started reading the Bible together. Mike, and this is a different Mike, he's a mechanic, gathered the group, uh, the group of people in his shop to tell them about Jesus, and that's produced a handful of really fruitful conversations at the workplace. One of our ladies is serving her dad, whose health is failing, She's been able to engage in conversation, pointing him to Jesus, all the while praying that God would save him. The Maddoxes have recently uprooted their family, moved to Kansas, and they're planting a church in Lawrence. Uh, One of my friends, Andy, he's doing a great job of engaging his co-workers. Uh, Just on a personal note, has been such an encouragement for me to watch. Talks to him about the importance of Jesus, invites him to church, all of that. It's been incredible to watch that. Another family's gotten to know their neighbors, asked them for ways they could pray for them. And that simple step of just asking for ways they could pray for them has totally opened up conversations in their neighborhood about Jesus. One of uh, my favorite guys in our church, his name is Robert. Robert loves dogs. He loves to rescue dogs. And he's found himself involved in a community of people who are largely atheist, who also love to rescue dogs. So he's taking his hobby and using it with gospel intentionality. So they all love to rescue dogs, primarily made up of atheists, this group of people. And he's used this opportunity to share Jesus with people who would never come on a Sunday morning. Mike, and this is a different Mike, and evidently, like, to be good at missional living, your name needs to be Mike, right? (laughs) Another Mike is a motorcycle guy. So stunt performer. Like, your life expectancy is like three years old for these people. He tours around the country using this unique talent of doing motorcycle stunt stuff as a platform to share Jesus with with the world. And then at home, he uses that common interest with other people who are like motorcycle people to engage people who are far from God. The Elsoms have simply committed themselves to being good neighbors. 
just to being good neighbors. What a great like avenue for mission. Just to being good neighbors. They check in on the people living around them. They help when they, are, they, uh, they, help when they can and are able. They perform simple and random acts of kindness. Not only has that made their neighborhood a more enjoyable place to live, but it's also given them the opportunity to have conversations about Jesus. And not long ago, they even got to see one of those neighbors baptized. Anna's gotten to know a coworker who is far from God. She's taken the next step and invited that coworker, her friend now, over for dinner with the hopes of talking about Jesus. One of our ladies, after feuding with an unbelieving neighbor, they're in Cruddy Valley in the neighborhood, feuding with an unbelieving uh, neighbor, has set aside her offense, her pride and fear to reconcile with that neighbor for the sake of their home group's gospel witness in that neighborhood. Another one of our families are meeting with neighbors to work through marriage difficulties. Uh, Chase, a guy that goes to our church, has been able to use the loss of his son to share the gospel and how God relates to us in seasons of suffering to a friend that claims to be an atheist and is angry and bitter toward God, and they meet weekly for lunch. And that's just like a small sample of how God is using our church family on his mission of reconciling rebels to him. Just a sample of those. And more than anything, I read that just for our mutual encouragement. And really just to say, man, I want to invite you into that this year. Of just asking God, what would it look like for me to get on mission with you? And I want to just give you two places to start with that, and then we'll be done. Just two simple places for you and I to start. And by the way, when we're talking about mission, we're talking about doing your everyday things. So whatever your like spheres of influence are, that's your hobbies, that's your workplace, that's in your neighborhood, that's in your home. It's, it's in those normal kind of places that you go. It's doing that with gospel intentionality. And in light of that, let me just give you these two places to start. Number one is maybe we could just start praying for a handful of people who are far from God that you would just look at your normal like spheres of influence, your workplace, neighborhood, hobbies, where God has you, your kids practice. And and you would just start asking the question, who around me is far from God that I could start praying for? I could start pleading that God would save these people. I've told you this story before, but one of my favorite stories on this is a guy named George Mueller. He started praying for five of his friends that were far from God. And when he started praying, almost immediately three of those uh, guys got saved. But the other two, he prayed for 25 years for these people. And I love, at one point, somebody asked him, do you really think God's going to answer this prayer? Like, do you really think these two people are going to meet Jesus someday? And I loved his response back. His response back was, do you think God would have kept me praying all these years if he didn't intend to answer? For 25 years. Right before his death, the fourth one got saved. And the fifth one got saved at his funeral. Maybe that could just encourage us to hang in there with our praying, to be long-suffering in our praying for people who are far from God. And then secondly, so we're praying for people who are far from God. And, and here's the second one, that we would go and we would ask them for ways that we could be praying for them. You know, I'm just amazed at what that simple question does in friendships and relationships. It just totally opens up the air for like, you know, talk and conversation about Jesus and spiritual things to develop. So just asking a specific question on how it is that you could be praying for them. Here would be our hope for 2014, that more and more and more we are seeing our identity as sons and daughters of God, that we are gospel-centered people living in daily awareness of our need for grace. 
that we would be living in this identity of family, that we would be living in community with one another, and that we would be living in this identity of missionary, that we would be living on the mission of God together. And in light of that, I think it would be appropriate that we would just pray that God would give us much fruit this year in those endeavors. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.